Welcome to the Non-Alcoholic Drinks Podcast, helping you navigate the ever-growing world of what non-alcoholic drinks have to offer by bringing you the latest news, interviews, and drink reviews. Now, here is your host, Jonathan Lambrianidis. Hello, and thank you so much for joining me on another episode of the Non-Alcoholic Drinks Podcast brought to you by tipplezero.com. This is a podcast for anyone looking to take the guesswork out of what an alcoholic drink to try next while staying up to date with the latest news and new releases. My name is Jonathan Lambrianidis, and today's episode is supported by Brunswick Aces, the creators of Australia's first non-alcoholic gin, founders of Australia's first non-alcoholic bar and bottle shop, and the online home of Non-Alcoholic. They have been kind enough to offer listeners a 12% discount using the code TIPPLE12 at checkout on their wide range of non-alcoholic beer, wine, and spirits from all over the world. So to find out more, head over to brunswickaces.com and choose how you drink, not if you drink. Alrighty, today I'm chatting with Mike Graham from Banks and Burbage. Now, if you don't know who Mike is, he is the creator of the Banks and Burbage alcohol-free distilled gin. It is a traditional tasting gin using at least 60% juniper in every single bottle and it utilizes some amazing locally sourced produce and botanicals. It is a soft flavor profile with spice and citrus and finishes with a really, really great heat from Tasmanian pepper berries and dried chili. I chat to Mike today about all things Banks and Burbage, where you can find it, the flavor profile, and also how he went about creating the drink. So with that, let's hop across to today's chat with Mike and see what he's got to say. Mike, welcome to the Non-Alcoholic Drinks Podcast. It's great to have you on board and really looking forward to sharing how you got started with the project that is Banks and Burbage. But before we dive into that, it would be really great to get everyone up to speed on your background and how you got into the space. Thanks, Jonathan. It's it's uh, it's really great to talk to you this morning. Going back, I think 2015 was when I first sort of started to explore non-alcoholic alternatives to to gin. I was a, I'd say a, a frequent alcohol drinker, not a heavy alcohol drinker, but I loved a gin and tonic and love red wine. And I had some health issues around my heart and going through, as you do with your with your medical professionals, going through you know lifestyle changes. What did I need to look at? Diet was obviously one of those things, and Unfortunately, alcohol was on the list. And, you know, while again, while I'd never been a, a heavy drinker, you know, it was a case of, well, can I cut down on alcohol? And as I said, my two favorite were gin and tonic and red wine. So looking for alternatives you know, sort of started off in that in that gin space. And back in 2015, there was the only product I could really find was Seedlip. You know, I was able to get a bottle of Seedlip out through David Jones online. We're carrying it at the time. So I was able to get some Seedlip bottles. I can't say they hit the mark of what I was looking for. Because I was, re- I really was just looking for. I want to go from having my, you know, pre-dinner Bombay Sapphire and tonic or Hendrix and tonic to a non-alcoholic equivalent, which tasted exactly the same, gave me exactly the same feeling, and, and it was just that that good after-work drink or sort of transition into into dinner drink that I really come to enjoy. So I didn't sort of think too much about it, just sort of kept my eye on the marketplace as to what alternatives were there until just in 2017, I found myself without a without a job and was thinking about what should I be doing next? And it was my wife actually who said to me, well, why don't you look further into the non-alcoholic gin issue you've been thinking about? I'd been doing research on, you know, how are these things made? How is gin made, et cetera, just sort of trying to learn more about the product. And I wanted to look for something, I suppose, when I'm looking at what I was going to do next, I've been trying 
traveling for such a long time. I wanted to stay at home in Brisbane, moving on a little bit in age, and obviously I'd had some health issues. So I was looking for something that would be, you know, keep me physical. So you know, rather than sitting behind a desk all day, something that I could do. And so that the idea of, well, if I can't find something that I like, why don't I make it myself? And so I just started to research how it's made recipes around gin, got in contact with a company called Still Dragon down in Coffs Harbour that suppliers to the distilling industry as far as with stills and that sort of thing and talked to Gary down there about what sort of equipment would be required and just basically got to the point where I said, well, I can do this. I'm going to try and make something for myself, basically, that is just that classic gin that you can have a nice gin and tonic. I wasn't looking for a specific unusual flavor, which obviously in the in the gin marketplace particularly is been a trend the last couple of years coming up with unusual flavors. I just wanted that nice bottle of gin that you could have in the cupboard, pull out for a dinner party, and you know everybody's going to like it, whether it's your Bombay Sapphire, your Tanqueray equivalent, that you can just have in your cupboard and be a, make a nice, reliable gin and tonic. So that's sort of how it, how it started. And you know, a lot of research and a lot of a lot of uh, challenges from there, but that's that's where the thought process came from. It was around health. It was around finding an equivalent that I could keep still having a nice gin and tonic, but without the alcohol, obviously. So it really looks like it was one of those moments where you've had this health issue and you're like, okay, well, I need to change something. Like so many people who talk about this piece around the early movers in the space, how did you go about that research piece? Because I imagine that is something which is so difficult to go from someone who likes drinking gin and knows what they like to someone who's actually able to create an alcoholic gin and then move across to the piece of a non-alcoholic gin. So how, what did that look like? Well, I suppose for me it was, I mean, first of all, it was just looking at what is in gin. So looking at, you know, looking at recipes, looking at ingredients, and, and particularly around those core good quality standard gins like Bombay Sapphire and Hendrix, et cetera, looking at their ingredients. So understanding what what goes in them. Ben, who started Seedlip, had written a fair bit of stuff about the processes that he went through, so the, the manufacturing process. So starting to look at how gin is made. Again, challenging myself and looking and saying, well, there's the make it like an alcoholic gin and basically take the alcohol out. Or I sort of said to myself, you know, why why do you even need to introduce the alcohol in the first place? I mean, obviously in Australia there's licensing issues around being able to use alcohol. And so there was a little bit of incentive of why put alcohol into the product at all? So that's sort of where I was coming from was how can I do it without introducing alcohol? And it was everything I was reading, it was as well, where I see the word alcohol just change that to water. And what does that do? Now, obviously, that leads to a, a lot of issues in flavoring and manufacturing, etc., which I got to along the journey and had to solve. But to me, I almost started to think this is too simple to be true. Make it like a traditional gin, but just introduce water instead of alcohol and go from there. Yeah, and I think that's a really important piece as well around using water as the base. It doesn't quite have the properties that ethanol has when you go to utilize it against the botanicals. And it really looks like that there's been so many challenges along the way of people trying to distill something with water and then having to really bump up the amount of botanicals used. Tasting the Banks and Burbage is really interesting because straight away, at least for me, I found the floral notes in it. And I imagine that that would, would have been something quite difficult to create. So with the process around getting it from raw botanicals and then the water. How did you find that was a, a process that you came about yourself or, again, was it a byproduct of all of the research? Yeah, again, I think a, a byproduct of the research. I always wanted to be traditional. I always wanted to make the gin in a very traditional way and, and obviously there's normally, you know, I suppose for, for gin there's normally two ways. There's the maceration way where you're getting all the botanicals and cooking them basically and getting all the, the flavours out that way and then putting them in the still. 
or there's the infusion, having the flavors in a basket and having the, the alcoholic vapors flow through those. Now, for me, obviously, just using water, the infusion way was not going to work. Just passing steam over the botanicals, you're not going to be able to draw the depth of flavors out. So for me, the maceration way was the way to go. So it was, I suppose, a little bit of experimentation around the actual process. How long do you boil it for? How long do you leave it for to try and get as much flavor out of the botanicals as you can? And then just a simple case of the amount of botanicals used. So the botanicals you have, what percentage is a grouping? What percentage are they in the final product? And, you know, to be fair to say, we're probably, with the latest batch we've made, we're probably using 20% more botanicals than what we used in the very first batch through fantastic feedback from customers because I, I was probably a little bit too close to it. I think you can taste the flavors when you know what you're looking for. But for somebody to take a Banks and Burbage for the first time and mix it with their favorite tonic water and drink it, getting that feedback that it was, yeah, I can, the flavors are there, but they're a bit too subtle. You know, it'd be great if there was a bit more depth to the flavors. And so through that feedback, just keeping the same recipe as far as the relationship of the botanicals, but just putting more of them in. Over time, it has been a realization that, that, yeah, if you're using a water base rather than an alcoholic base, You've just got to use so much more botanicals to, to get that same depth of flavor. You know, obviously the, the alcohol releases the flavors that water doesn't. The process in boiling and breaking it down and leaving, leaving that seeping process go for, for at least two days, et cetera, to get as much of that flavor out as possible. So it looks like there is really that piece around so much trial and error and so many iterations by the sounds of it. And based off that customer feedback, you've been able to iterate the product again and actually have this amazing feedback and it allows you to create something better than you probably ever imagined, right? Exactly, exactly. And and we, we did use, so right from the start, again, I suppose from that factor of feeling like you're a little bit close to it, we used focused tasting groups to help us with the first product. We knew what we were going for. So we, we sort of you know told people we just wanted that standard, I, I hate using the word generic, but standard good quality gin that is not necessarily a flavor that creates a poll with people. They either like it or hate it, but it's just something that you can have in your cupboard and you're happy to bring out for a dinner party or guests or whatever. And as I said, the Bombay Sapphire, the Tanqueray equivalent, etc. So people knew what we were going for. We explained that people got that. And so we ran, I think we ran about four tasting sessions with different groups of people and got the feedback based on was this something that you would swap for alcohol product how close to it was for tanqueray or bombay sapphire etc and got a lot of feedback around that so that's sort of where we went to and then we sort of done the same thing since then relying on customers feedback and looking for those common grounds as to how we can improve the product that's a really interesting piece i haven't heard many people say that they actually went down that path of engaging customers at the iterative stage at the development stage so what was some of the feedback that you did get there because i know that you you noted a couple of other alcoholic gins that you were directing them towards did it skew one way or or the other or was it kind of even across the board we were aiming for a direction so we were aiming for as i said that that bombay sapphire tanqueray type equivalent we were aiming for that you know so it went from one focus group to the next focus group it was using the feedback to move us more in that direction the other critical piece that came out was a lot of people were looking for, they understood that it was non-alcoholic, but they were looking for the same alcoholic feel and particularly around heat. And we had factored that in, in the original recipe and we'd introduced one of our ingredients is Tasmanian pepperberry. I mean, to me, it's, it's, it's actually my, my favorite ingredient. I love the smell of it. It's, there's a sweetness, but at the same time, you get you, you, that peppery feel. And so we introduced that to, to get that peppery heat in the product. But what we were hearing was that it wasn't enough. There wasn't enough of, particularly in the aftertaste, 
So as the as the product's going down your throat, you know, at the top of your mouth or in your throat, just leaving that little bit of heat and that little bit of texture there. So we tried a few different things. We tried ginger. The problem with ginger was it, it has its own taste, obviously, and was impacting it too much in that regard. And we ended up settling on chili. So we added chili pepper to the recipe and, and that got consensus that that was definitely adding heat to the product. But as I said, in the last batch, again, we've upped the amount of chili in the product. So, you know, and we are enjoying the feedback we're getting with customers we've had for a long time now writing to us and saying, wow, I can really feel that now. That's a great sensation that I get in the back of my throat. So that's, uh, it, it's been a good process, but, um, you know, some, sometimes, sometimes the comments you've got to take on board a little bit, uh, a little bit harshly and go, oh, okay, I'll, I'll resolve myself to keep going. So there's a lot of, a lot of positive constructive feedback as well. And that's part of the process as well, right? It's putting yourself to one side and actually being like, well, I'm making this for people to enjoy and drink as well. And that is another piece around the botanicals themselves. So I noticed you said you've been upping them as you go, but that ratio around the juniper uh, botanical has remained constant. Like you said, the recipe has remained relatively constant generally. Is it the same where juniper's sitting at around a minimum 60% in the drink and then the other botanicals live around that? Exactly. Yeah. So we, we actually put about 62% juniper in our drink. And as I said, we we're trying to make a traditional gin and traditionally gin is made on juniper. If you look at some of the guidelines, particularly in Europe, while there's to call the product gin, there's an alcoholic content, but there's also some definitions around the recipe and, and having a minimum 60% juniper is, is important in the recipe. So we wanted to be very traditional. We didn't want to move away from the very traditional gin taste based on juniper. And then at the same time, we wanted to make sure we had a touch of spiciness. We had the citrus feel, and then obviously coupled with that, having the heat of the product coming through. So having all those, what I would call the core gin textures and flavors in there, we wanted to make sure we had a piece of all that. And then the other ingredient that we added was just sort of, you know, orris root binds, it helps bind everything together and get those aromas and flavors coming through. And that was really important for us, particularly when you're not introducing alcohol to help you get those flavors out. So making sure we got a fair amount of orris root in there to really help get the aromas and the flavors of the other botanicals coming through and giving them longevity in the bottle was also important to us. And how does orris root support that as an ingredient or a botanical itself? It's called a fixative, so it helps fix the flavors that it's blended with together. So it helps bind them together and helps fix them in the in the solution. So it just, again, it gives it longevity, but also allows the flavors to work together and sort of just fixes them in place. So you're not getting variations over time, et cetera, and it's, and it's allowing each of the botanical flavors to be there and to deliver what they're meant to deliver. So it sounds like it acts as that natural way to stabilize and enhance the flavors as well. And in terms of the process behind manufacturing or creating the, the drink itself, it sounds like you do have the custom-made stainless and copper pot stills. Were they all sourced directly for you or from um, the team out in, in Coffs or did you kind of figure uh, find them uh, separately? No, no. So we work with Steel Dragon and Steel Dragon get all their material manufactured overseas. So working with the team down there, looking at exactly what we needed and they ordered it for us. So it would then allow you to create something which is truly unique and have your own kind of flavor profiles. Next up, Mike went on to explain the flavor profile in the Banks and Burbage product. So while it is a traditional tasting gin, have a listen to the way that the flavors are put together, structured, and what you can expect to find in each glass. If you were describing it to someone who's never had it before, like you said, it's quite a traditional tasting gin with that spice and that heat from that chili. What would you describe it as if you were describing it to somebody uh, completely new to it? 
In simple terms, I'd say it's complex flavor, but it's subtle. So it allows you to, I think through your garnishing, it allows you to move it in a way that you prefer your gin and tonics to be. So if you're more a citrus type, you know, if you prefer the citrus flavors, you can use a lime or lemon garnish and it just pushes it a little bit more towards the citrus flavor. If you're a little bit more the botanical, a little bit more earthy, and, and, and I suppose I'm in that fear. I love, I love the Hendrix with the cucumber, you know, a little bit of cucumber. I keep a rosemary bush outside on my veranda, loving nothing better than to snip a little bit of rosemary and put it in there as well. So you can lean the flavor of the drink using the garnish, but it's got those because it's got a mixture of those. So it does have the citrusy feel. It does have the spiciness and it being predominantly juniper, you're always going to get that little bit of earthiness and pine coming through. So what I love it is you can just enhance it and move it subtly towards what you prefer. Yeah, I'm not a great drink the gin straight type person, so I, I don't normally drink it straight. But I think if you do drink it straight over ice, you can certainly feel the different textures and flavors in there. But as a gin and tonic, you know, say I, I generally tend to base on what am I feeling like today? Like cut a bit of lime and put it in there or do I drop some cucumber in there? Just depends what I'm looking for. It looks like it does work and I've tried it with a few different alternatives in terms of garnishes as well and also on its own and it, it really does work with different approaches and like you said, you kind of make it to what you feel. But the thing I noticed the most after trying so many of them lately is the actual mouth feel of it. When you look at it, I mean, when you look at it and it's clear, uh, it does sound a bit strange for me to say it's got a sheen and you can see the weight. When you actually move it around in your glass, it does have that weight and sheen to it. Was that something which, like you said earlier, you were you picked up from the feedback from the people who you were going through the focus groups with? And was that a real focus for you guys to develop that and really bring that to part of the drink? No, not really. I think that's just a side impact of the maceration process and the level of botanicals that are going into the recipe versus a, an alcoholic gin where the botanical content is much lower because the alcohol is working on it to bring the flavors. Because of the amount of botanicals we have to put in the drink, I think it delivers that little bit of sheen, that little bit of texture. That's amazing. And I think it's really interesting to hear that because so many people try to achieve that. They actually actively go out of their way to try and get that level of mouthfeel. And it looks like you've just focused on on the flavor and developing the flavor profile and it's taking care of itself, which is almost a lesson in itself, right? That if you kind of take care of the flavor piece and do all the main building blocks right, then the end product will actually take care of itself and deliver. Yeah, and I can't underestimate the impact the chili has on that because I think the chili in your mouth, whether that just opens up your taste buds a little bit more for, for, for that feel, I'm not sure. But, but certainly the chili impact has really helped bring out the flavors of the rest of the botanicals. And now that you've got this amazing product, where is it available? Because I know I pick mine up locally in store and it's also online, right? So obviously the industry is changing as far as where you can buy non-alcoholic alternatives and, and there's some great things happening in the marketplace with some new players out there. So we're with most of the online people that have come through. Sons Drinks, we've been with Craft Zero since they launched last year on Dan Murphy's online and they're now doing some testing in stores for expanding their non-alcoholic range. So we're one of the brands that they're testing with. Drink Zero, Killjoy Drinks, all those innovative new companies that are starting in this space, we are selling through them. And, and it almost feels like there's a new one every week. So, you know, we sort of try to keep up to date on social media and in the marketplace. 
For us, the key is how do we get people to taste the product? And from industries that I've worked in before, I've always had a saying is, you know, you've got to sell where they shop. And I think one of the challenges for this sort of product right from the word go is, you know, who is your market and and where are they going to buy this product? You know, is your market more people like myself who had become used to an alcoholic drink that they liked and were now looking for a non-alcoholic alternative? And therefore, would you put the product in a Dan Murphy's where people who are buying alcohol can see a non-alcoholic alternative? Or is your main market actually going to be people who've never really drunk alcoholic drinks before. They don't want to drink alcoholic drinks, but the attraction of maybe drinking a new product that is based on an alcoholic drink is a novelty for them and something they might be interested in. And so where will they shop? I think the likes of Sons Drinks and Craft Zero have really been a real boost for the industry. All of a sudden, there's now these online and, and in, in Sons Drinks case, of physical presence stores where people can go in and it's just non-alcoholic drinks. So they know they're there to shop for non-alcoholic products. And they're, they're obviously then going to be more open to looking at different brands, how they're made, what their contents are, what their ingredients are to try things differently. So I think the industry is really booming in the last 12 months with the new players in the space. And that's fantastic for, for obviously manufacturers like ourselves. And it's also available from you as well directly, isn't it, online? Yes, yes. So we have our own website at banksandburbage.com and we sold online. Originally, we happened to launch uh, right in the middle of the first wave of COVID. So our whole launch strategy was around bars and restaurants. We'd done a fair bit of work with particularly some gin bars, you know, Gin Palace in Melbourne, Proud Henry's here in Brisbane, talking to people there. They were excited about the fact that they get a group of people after dinner coming in and they're, you know, have giving them all different gins to taste. But obviously, sometimes in those groups, there might be one or two people who don't want to drink alcohol. And so they're giving them a, a mineral water or a Coke or an orange juice. And so now they can say, hey, hang on a minute, we've got a gin for you. And they could serve them a Banks and Burbage gin and tonic. So we're excited about launching through that aspect. But of course, COVID stopped all that in its tracks and uh, and then everything had to focus online. So getting our own website up and running and yes, people can shop through our own website, but obviously most of the other areas are online at the moment as well. We are just getting distribution now with bars and restaurants and we are available in Proud Henry's in Brisbane, have been a great supporter since the day we launched. And uh, and there's some other other restaurants here in Brisbane, Shucks Bar, La Coin Bistro, places like that that are, that are now stocking us. In venues really coming through, isn't it? It's really starting to take off and develop and you're right at the front of that before the wave of COVID hit. So is that something that is really on the radar as we come out of this COVID wave? Yes, absolutely. So our focus and Steve, who is part of our company, who I think you spoke to at one stage, he joined us with a real focus of getting that physical presence, really concentrating on the bars and restaurants and getting out to them and talking about the product so that people can come in and have that pre-dinner drink, that gin and tonic that they like. And going back to my days where it was having more than one alcoholic drink was always going to be a problem if you're driving. And, you know, here's me, I have to choose between, did I want my gin and tonic or do I want my red wine? And it was, you know, it was always a hassle, whereas now I can have both if, uh, if I can have a Banks and Burbage as, as the pre-dinner drink. That'll be good. It does look like it's really supporting that need for people who go out. Like you said, they're out and there's a group of them and it actually allows venues to cater to people who may not want to drink, can't drink or don't feel like having an alcoholic drink. And I think there's also that other option for in venue where people might want to dial it back so they can have more of them. So for example, if you want to have a couple of cocktails, then you add the Banks and Burbage in and it allows you to have two instead of one because you're cutting down the amount in each and every cocktail. 
Exactly, exactly. And that's one of the things we talked about with the guys at Proud Henry's is there's obviously mocktails that people can order and there's cocktails, which is, you know, the, the normal traditional alcohol. But in some cases, there's a lot of gin-based cocktails that use maybe two or three alcoholic ingredients. So if you can use a non-alcoholic gin as part of that drink, as you said, you're cutting down the alcohol level in that drink. So people can have, you know, instead of one or two, they can have two or three. Or they can just lower their alcohol content from the normal amount of drinks they have and help them from a health perspective. So it lends itself to being totally non-alcoholic alternative to actually also blending itself with alcoholic drinks just to bring down the alcoholic content or the amount of alcohol that people are having on a night out. There's so many different options for it and the whole industry as well is starting to move in that direction and bring some awareness to the piece that alcohol is a choice for some people and not drinking it is also a choice for others. But then there's also the choice for people in the middle who want to try both. And that's kind of a really exciting space to see it growing. And I think that's where it's going to really get traction in venue. So hopefully it means you guys up in Brisbane are able to enjoy venues a little bit earlier than we are down here in Melbourne, but we'll be looking on closely to see how things take off up there. Yeah. So a lot of the pre-work we've done around venues and talking to bars and restaurants and sort of getting people interested to take the product even before we come up with the final product was in Melbourne. And so it's such a shame the impact that COVID's had on the hospitality industry in Melbourne. And we can't wait until everything's back to normal and we're back up and running and we can get down to Melbourne and get around some of the people that we spoke to going back two or three years now and help support their businesses get back up on their feet. Yeah, I can't wait. It's going to be something which is going to be really quite special once it's all up and running again. And hopefully there's some banks and burbage in a few gin parlors down here and a few bars as well. So Mike, it's been really great to chat today. And I really enjoyed learning about the, the process, the iteration and the ingredients that go into the creation of the gin itself. If you could leave us with your favorite cocktail on how you do like to enjoy it, because I know you said you enjoyed a couple of different ways. So if you could choose one, how would you, uh, how would you run with it? Um, look, I, I really just, particularly as we're coming into spring and summer, and obviously up in Brisbane, we do have the warm summer afternoons. I love nothing better than gin and tonic, but move towards that real botanical flavoring. So some thinly shaved strips of cucumber, a twig of rosemary in a, in a, just a traditional gin and tonic. There's, there's nothing better. No, I don't disagree, especially when you haven't had one for a while. It's nice to just have it as it is in its truest form, right? Exactly. Exactly. Perfect. Well, no, I really enjoyed chatting and it's been great to have you on today. And hopefully you're up and running again soon and in venue sooner than we all expect. Thanks, Jonathan. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Alrighty, that is the end of today's episode. I really hope you enjoyed hearing Mike's chat and hearing all about Banks and Burbage, but more in particular about the launch strategy around using in-venue to really get the product in front of people and in their glasses. It's great to see that non-alcoholic options are starting to become a little bit more mainstream and getting out there. I really hope that you enjoyed the chat. And as always, you can find all the information over at tiplezero.com forward slash session zero eight. And if you want to keep up with me, you can follow me over at Tipple Zero Drinks on Instagram. Now, before I go, I did want to let you know that if I sounded a little bit flat coming into that episode, it was because it was probably about 25 minutes after the earthquake that we had down here in Melbourne. And I noticed while I was editing it, it did take me a little while to get going. I promise I will be back on it for the next one and hopefully everything is good to go. So until next time, I hope you guys enjoy some great non-alcoholic drinks and I will chat to you guys soon. Bye.